Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, Illinois, uh, where we have a beautiful sunny day, 75 degrees, the way it should always be, but usually isn't. Um, I'm flying solo again today. Uh, next week, as we've been uh, pushing all uh, all along, we've got Tony Saunders, Merle Saunders' son, who's going to be our guest. Rob will be in for that. Uh, he wouldn't miss it. Neither would I. Uh, neither should you. It's going to be a great show. But today is, uh, is really a lot of fun. Um, it's May. Uh, Rob and I have talked ad nauseum about the uh, Grateful Dead playing at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl, and we've primarily been focused on 1992 and the Steve Miller uh, uh, performance where he came out and played the second set with the boys the third day and all the fun they had with that and uh, Brent carrying Jerry when his string broke and on and on and on. But uh, it wasn't a one-off. They'd been there in uh, 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 the prior years as well, and so um, – this is 1993. We had seen them there in 91, 92, and then in uh, 93, uh, 94. They just kept going, but I got to a point where uh, it just wasn't feasible uh, uh, for me to keep going out and seeing the shows uh, because I'm not my good Kevin who uh, has that uh, that karma that lets him go even uh, even with multiple kids around. God bless him and God bless his wife. That's a great arrangement if you can find it. I highly recommend it. Uh, but we're going to focus on the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl show today. Uh, from Las Vegas, Nevada, May 15th, 1993. Before we even get started, the more, one of the more significant things is the opening act, and that would be Sting. Sting as in, I used to be in the police. Sting as in, you know, I'm huge and giant and everyone in the world knows me and uh, people make fun of me on TV shows, but I'm still richer than them. And uh, an amazing musician, you know, he, he's, he's earned it the old-fashioned way and he, he, he plays hard and strong. And he was the opening act for the Grateful Dead. There was no moments when they actually shared the stage, um, but it was, it, was, it was fun and kind of humorous. We, we picked up the show in Chicago when it came through on the summer tour. They would always test drive these, uh, these summer tours with their opening acts, which became popular in the 90s. Uh, they'd, always, they'd always test drive it at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl. Uh, we had, seen, like I said, seen uh, Steve Miller the year before that. And uh, the year before that, we had seen um, Roger McGuinn. Uh, he had been the opening act. And uh, they would go on to have others, Traffic, I think, one year, um, and a few other bands. So it was always a lot of fun uh, and Sting open. But because we don't really have any sets uh, with him playing with the boys, uh, we don't really have anything from there. Uh, but we do have a lot of songs from that day, and we're going to kick off with the opener. And you hear it as the fans heard it back on uh, uh, 1993. So let's hit it. advertise them as creases boy just another one of those great lines uh, that comes out of the minds of uh bob weir and uh mr barlow as they sit down and create these wonderful uh 
wonderful songs for us in Picasso Moon. Uh, we've talked about that before. Uh, I know Rob and I are both big fans uh, of October 16th, 1989, 16th being Bob Weir's birthday. Uh, and that's a show that's at uh, Brendan Byrne. It came out, it was released as uh, Nightfall of Diamonds uh, because they do break out a monster, monster dark star in there. But the show kicks off with my favorite Picasso Moon. Uh, but it's just a great high energy song. It gets the crowd going. Uh, we didn't hear it this time, but bigger than a drive-in movie. Ooh, we is always a lot of fun and uh, people jump up and down and get all excited. And then, uh, you know, you hope that the boys are on a roll and, you know, really sustain and keep it going. And I think it would be hard to say that on this night, they failed that task. Um, again, this is a show with uh, so many great tunes to pick from and so many wonderful examples uh, that it was just hard to, you know, to find the five or six that we're going to play. Um, it's an interesting show because it was not a particularly long show. It's only a six song first set and a total of uh, 16 songs if you count drums in space. So if you take them out, you know, really only 14. Um, and, you know, this, this one, you know, probably didn't hit two and a half hours in total music time. Uh, but on the other hand, it was a great, uh, great uh, performance by the dead at a great venue. And uh, this is a, a really well done audience tape. So you can pick up audience from time to time. And I don't hear anybody complaining about being there. And uh, everybody seems to be woofing and howling uh, and having a lot of fun. So uh, the boys uh, come out hot with Picasso Moon. Uh, they pop into Peggio. And then uh, for Jerry to get a little in, great Peggio, by the way. Uh, and then Bobby comes back and decides it's time to have some fun. And so we get the boys' first uh, really good cover of the night. That's just a treat. The same thing, uh, Willie Dixon tune, uh, interestingly, though, first recorded by Muddy Waters at Chess Records, uh, April 9th, 1964. Uh, the Grateful Dead wound up playing the tune 46 times. Uh, the first one as far back as November 9th, 1966 at the Fillmore in San Francisco. A few times after that, uh, in uh, uh, that year and then in 1967, a couple of times, on New Year's Eve 1971, and then completely dropped from the repertoire till 1991 uh, through 1995. And in fact, they last played the tune on July 5th, 95, at the Riverport Center in St. Louis, one of the final four shows ever for the dead. I was at those shows and uh, love hearing that tune. It's uh, just a special one when you get to hear it. 
and uh, Bobby does a very good job with it. Uh, I really love Vince's keyboards, though, when they're early on in the clip where he's really uh, tickling uh, the keyboards. And uh, just when, when when you're in the middle of a big dead jam like that and the, the keyboards are so so pronounced, it was always a great thing. Brent was always really good about getting out there, but not too much, just enough to fill in the spaces and, uh, you know, really kind of motivate the crowd. And I think motivate Jerry and Bobby a little bit, too. Uh, so, yeah, the same thing. Uh, what a great tune. And uh, only 46 times. So, you know, if you caught it, that was great. And if you didn't, you didn't. And uh, it was probably more likely that you wouldn't. But uh, then there was other songs that you did catch that uh, other people didn't get to hear. And that was always the, the, the way about doing this. Um, it's hard to believe that it's been 30 years uh, uh, since this show in 93. Uh, you know, and, and time marches on as we will be rapidly closing in on the 30th anniversary of Jerry's passing. 30 being the same number of years that the Grateful Dead played. So that's going to be uh, historic for some people and a, and a real time smack in the head for other people to realize so much time has now gone by, um, you know, equivalent to the amount of time that they were around bringing happiness and joy to all the deadheads uh, who were out there listening to them. And uh, of course, as we know, many of those deadheads uh, like to smoke marijuana and we uh, have some very, very interesting things going on in the world of marijuana, both on the national level, on the state level, and uh, let's dive in for a minute on some of this stuff because, uh, as always, it's kind of a mixed bag. We have some really good news, in my opinion. Uh, and then there's always some news that, uh, you know, you say maybe we could do without and, and you would hope wouldn't be the case. And uh, But let's, let's, let's dive in and see where we're at. I sound like a broken record. That's what you're all going to say. And deservedly so, because I say this almost every chance I get to say it. Uh, but now we have to say it again, because this is significant. Headline, teen marijuana use has been declining since legal dispensaries started opening. Federal CDC study shows. First of all, thanks. A shout out to Kyle Yeager and uh, Marijuana Moment. Um, if this is a... Uh, uh, great website that they put out. And for us, it's uh, a source of a lot of the news that we pull down and uh, we present on this show. MJ Biz, of course, being the other one. And uh, we're always thankful to them uh, and, and, and companies like these um, who really, you know, have a common background and we're the, the pioneers in all of this and have been sponsoring the, the industry's largest trade show for a long time. And it, it just becomes a go-to place to find out what's going on in the industry. So, What's significant about this? We've been saying teenage smoking goes down in states when they go legal. People always deny it, always argue with you about it. Then more studies, more studies, more studies. This study comes from the Center for the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC's Youth Risk Behavior Survey. That was published last week and found that teen use of all monitored substances, including marijuana, alcohol, and prescription drugs, has decreased linearly over the past decade. Linearly, that's a hard word to say, linearly. I hope you understand what I'm trying to say there. Uh, I'm not my friend Harold, but I try. When it comes to cannabis, what's especially notable about this is that the federal study shows high school student use was trending up from 2019 to 2013 before legal marijuana dispensaries started opening, but has been generally on the decline since then. The first state recreational legalization laws were approved by voters in 2012, with regulated sales beginning in 2014 in Colorado and Washington state. The latest data from the biennial survey shows that 15.8% of high school students report using marijuana at least once in the past 30 days in 2021, 
down from 21.7% in 2009 and significantly lower than the record high of 23.4% in 2013. So overall, this is a very encouraging and positive health trend uh, that we're all very happy to see. As a result, teens are also reporting lower rates of lifetime marijuana consumption. In 2021, 27.8% of teens said they'd use cannabis at least once in their lifetime, a nearly 10 percentage point drop from 2019 when the rate was 36.8%. Again, the peak lifetime use for marijuana was in 2013, 40.7% before any states had opened adult use cannabis retailers. The Center for Disease Control, I know that there are some Americans who don't believe anything that come out of places like that. Uh, But hopefully on this one, we can put politics aside and just agree once and for all that no community has the right to deprive its its residents of legal marijuana or medical marijuana by falsely claiming that doing so will increase teenage smoking. It won't. The studies say it won't. This is a done issue. If people want to try and contradict it, go right ahead. But the facts are what they are. So that goes in the category of good story and everybody else, please shut the heck up uh, and just be happy that there's a substance out there uh, that adults can use and teens aren't totally glomming onto yet. Uh, And if they get to the right age and decide that it's something that they want to engage with, it's a thousand times safer than them making the decision to engage with alcohol or drink two cups of coffee every day, right? Or any of these other ways that uh, we put substances into our bodies on a regular basis uh, that aren't good, but we just don't really think about it all that much. Um, and in the overall scheme of things, marijuana, at least on that list, is going to be more near the bottom of uh, dangerous substances and, and potential long-term negative health effects. So, you know, these are myths when people try to contradict that, when people try to tell you that you're going to become schizophrenic, that all these other bad things are going to happen. And uh, that's my spin on it. So let's move on. More good news. The Senate committee adds new witnesses for marijuana bank hearing this week, right? We've talked about the fact that this time uh, the plan is that there have been bills introduced in both the House and the Senate to get some form of the Safe Banking Act in that would allow states, that, that would allow businesses in states that uh, are, are operating under legal programs uh, to be able to get the benefit of the banking system for one reason or another. And I know Rob and I have talked about this quite a bit, and Rob is very skeptical as, as to if and when it can ever be passed. And while it's encouraging to see that the Senate is starting off with its own version this time to see if it can come to an agreement and then send it down to the House, which has been so overwhelmingly supportive of this idea, uh, that that might be a good way to do it. So the U.S. Uh, Senate Banking Committee has added new witnesses who are going to testify at a hearing on bipartisan marijuana banking bill this week. Um Uh, In addition to the top bipartisan sponsors of the Secure and Fair Enforcement Safe Banking Act, an equity-focused cannabis reform activist, a union representative, cannabis financial service company executive, and a leading prohibitionist advocate share their perspective on the legislation and underlying financial services. Uh, It's going to be held before the hearing. The Banking Committee Chairman, Sherrod Brown, the Democrat from Ohio, uh, says last last week that senators are planning to move quickly on the legislation from Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon, and Senator Steve Daines, a Republican from Montana, bipartisan support in the the Senate. Let's see what we can do. So in addition to these two senators, there's going to be uh, other people who are going to testify. The first is Kat Packer of the Cannabis Regulators of Color Coalition and the Drug Policy Alliance, a former Los Angeles cannabis regulator who now serves as the vice chair of the CRCC and director of drug markets and legal regulations at DPA. 
Following the reintroduction of the Safe Banking Act last month, she applauded technical changes that were made to promote equity. She has emphasized the need to resolve marijuana banking issues, but to do so in a way that specifically supports communities that have been disproportionately harmed by the war on drugs, uh, which we know and is, again, uh, something that we've talked about. Um, one of the organization's recommendations is to extend protections to minority depository in, in institutions and to community development financial institutions and was incorporated into the latest version of the bill. The next witness is going to be, and please forgive me because I'm not going to pronounce her name right, Adamola Oyefiso, United Food and Commercial Workers International Union. She is the director of the union's legislative and political action department. The union organization represents over 1 million workers, has routinely advocated for cannabis reform, including urging President Joe Biden to support legalization alongside other advocacy groups. Uh, it's been working to organize marijuana sector workers in legal states. It's also pushed for specific priorities in state-level reform, such as labor peace agreement requirements as part of legalization legislation. And then Michelle uh, Sullivan uh, of DAMA Financial. She's the chief risk and compliance officer at DAMA Financial, which provides services to state-licensed marijuana businesses working to navigate the tricky federal regulations on behalf of companies that are seeking banking services and, quite frankly, which company isn't. Um, and then we have Kevin Sabet, uh, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, or SAM. He's the CEO of SAM and one of the leading figures working to defeat legalization efforts. SAM is opposed to the Safe Banking Act, arguing that it would enrich the industry and that it potentially be abused by bad actors. The organization has also maintained that, contrary to what the bill's advocates say, it would exacerbate inequities in the cannabis market. Well, I'm not going to hold myself out to be experts along the lines of these guys, but let's just take a look at this understanding that's from a guy who is speaking to potential changes in the banking institution for an industry that he doesn't believe should be allowed to exist. So he says it would enrich the industry and that it'd be potentially be abused by bad actors. Providing legal banking services cuts down on black market money, which is exactly what we have now when people have to go to the black market or people have to go to private equity and agree to terms that are often preposterous, but they have no choice in order to get the financing they think they need to get up and running, even though they're entering into a market, which with 280E, which we're not touching on right now, but we'll get to later, uh, all of these problems, and here's this guy saying, no, um, it, it, uh, regular safe banking would be abused by bad actors. Well, you know, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but I don't see where he says this. I don't see where he comes up with this. That's like saying that any industry that has regular safe banking could abuse it. Sure, they could, but that's why we have banking regulators, and that's why banks have due diligence departments, and they look into these things very carefully. And so if he's saying we can't trust the banks, then you know maybe he needs to go have a conversation with the banks about that. So he says the organization has also maintained that contrary to the bill's advocates, that it would exacerbate inequities in the cannabis market. Now, this one is really shocking. One of the biggest problems in the cannabis market right now is the lack of money for businesses that are trying to get up and running. If we had a legal banking system where people could go to their local bank and apply for a loan like people have done for ages to get small businesses off the ground, it would be tremendously helpful. Uh, it would be regulated. It would be safe. It would be financially reasonable. Otherwise, you're talking about people trying to have to go and tap into private money sources that either they don't know exist or aren't interested in working with them uh, in trying to make their businesses happen. And some of them are dying on the vine because they have no place to turn to get money. Uh, so to say 
that having legal banking services would exacerbate inequities uh, is another thing that I just find very hard to believe. Uh, it, it really kind of defies logic. And I guess, you know, certainly I'm, I'll be biased and prejudiced when I say this, but I'll, knowing what we all know about marijuana, you, you kind of have to have that frame of mind, you know, to, to, to get up and to advocate, you know, against this and, and for those purposes. Um, but look, uh, again, you know, hand, uh, round of applause for Kevin Sabat for agreeing to come and speak. He knows he's probably not the most popular guy in the room. Uh, but I think in order uh, for senators and uh, other representatives, uh, legislators to make fair and reasonable and what they believe are informed decisions, uh, they might as well hear the whole side of the story. And of course, they're certainly free you know, to evaluate all the speakers' uh, credentials and statements and biases uh, as much as anybody else and um, you know, see what they have to say about it. Um, so, you know, senators on both sides of the aisle are pushing for urgent action on the Standalone Safe Banking Act, again, which would protect banks that work with state legal cannabis businesses from being penalized by federal regulators. Um, uh, there's been some new amendments. Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said at a cannabis rally in New York City that he would bring the bill to the floor after it clears committee, and he emphasized that it would be revised to ex- inc- include, excuse me, include expungement provisions, which, of course, uh, is another very, very important part of what we're looking for. Um, there's a lot of other issues tied up in this. Um, it is something that we've been following very carefully. Uh, it's something that we're going to continue to follow very carefully. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, the key is to be able to provide safe banking for this industry so that this industry has a chance to move forward and enjoy the benefits that every other industry in society has. Um, you know, and people are going to say, well, yeah, but marijuana is a schedule one, uh, controlled substance to which we all say, uh, okay, you know, that's really enough of that, right? We, we have stories every week about all the uh, the positive health benefits that marijuana can provide, treating symptoms, uh, helping people with all sorts of problems, uh, PTSD, uh, the list goes on and on and on, anxiety, things that people get hooked on meds for, you know, the kind of meds that we see, uh, you know, in Dopesick, I'm not saying that every uh, drug company is marketing like that, but I'm saying that when you're dealing with big pharma and drugs from big pharma, uh, they aren't necessarily uh, providing you with the substances uh, that, you know, are the, the most natural or uh, in that, you know, take uh, all of that kind of stuff into regard. They're marketing pills uh, that they can make a profit on and that I'm sure may very well provide the benefits you're looking for, but at what cost you in terms of what else, what other ingredients are put into those pills and everything else. Again, I take no position on it. I know nothing about that industry, uh, but it seems to me that anytime you can take something natural uh, and herbal like marijuana and it provides the relief you're looking for, why well, have to go looking anywhere else? So, um, you know, this is all just important stuff, and uh, it, it, it's really important to stay on top of it and, and follow, and, and, and that we will. Um, let's go back to our uh, Grateful Dead show from May 15th, 1993, at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl. And uh, uh, in a night of covers, uh, the dead roll right into their next one, uh, and they do not disappoint as uh, Phil takes center stage. Tree. Leave the whole world behind. I wanna go with you, God. I'll 
Robertson from his self-titled album that was released in October 1987. It's been covered by the likes of Rod Stewart. Uh, and the Dead started playing it in uh, 1993, February 23rd in Oakland, to be exact. Uh, stayed in the repertoire right up until the very end, July 2nd, 95, uh, in Deer Creek. Uh, so that's expanding it out to one of the final six Dead shows ever. Uh, they played it a total of uh, uh, 21 times in 93, uh, but then they began to diminish only nine times in 94 and only five times in 95. Uh, but for all of us who were going to these shows, uh, it was just another great piece for Phil to take center stage on. Uh, you know, Phil really exploded on the scene uh, as a solo performer um, uh, when he started playing uh, uh, just like Tom's Thumbs Blues. And then, of course, in uh, March of 86, he brought back Box of Rain, and all of a sudden, uh, it was not uncommon to see Phil at the microphone uh, at a dead show. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, you know, if, if you kind of, and I took the time to go through a lot of the songs that uh, uh, Phil ultimately sang on. I'm sure there's a few I'm missing. I, uh, at the Garden in 19, uh, October 1983, um, one of the shows that's in the in and out of the Garden, we go box set. Uh, the second night, the night after the St. Stephen breakout, they opened with Cold Rain and Snow and Phil walked up to Bobby's mic and sang on the out in the cold rain and snow line over and over again at the end of the tune. And we noticed that and got excited about it. And, you know, a year or two later, uh, Tom Thumbs Blues. And then after that box of rain, uh, Phil uh, also voiced uh, the go down Miss Moses verse in the wait, the Maggie's Pa verse and Maggie's farm, both tunes that uh, have five verses that each person in the band would take a turn singing. Um, and then sometimes they'd all sing one verse together, but that was always fun. And then a bunch of uh, mashups with Brent. Why don't we do it in the road by the Beatles? Uh, Give me some love. And they played, saw them break that out at the uh, new year shows at the end of 1984 out in San Francisco with my good buddy, Rick, uh, the third, uh, the third set of new year's Eve. And they just came out uh, jamming. Phil's bass was on fire that night. Uh, it's a great tune and uh, love to see Phil and Brent doing that. And then of course on Brent's song, uh, tons of steel they harmonize on the second verse at the beginning or right at the end of the verse i guess she wasn't built to travel at the speed of rumor flies these wheels are bound to jump the track before they burn the ties uh my favorite part of the song because he and brent really have a great harmony going there uh that he and brent also knocked out keep on growing uh which i saw him break out at the 85 uh, greek theater shows the 20th anniversary shows with the big huge crowd out there andy and alex and larry and and uh, everybody, uh, Andy and Steve and Jack and goes on and on. The great shows, one of the best times we've ever had. Um, and and then uh, with this song, uh, Broken Arrow, this is carried over. Uh, Phil played it with the other ones. I remember seeing it at the uh, 
uh, the other ones played uh, the first time after uh, Jerry's death. And then, uh, of course, Phil and Friends, it, it's uh, regularly uh, in the cycle for that band uh, when he's out touring. And uh, just a great, great song, always fun to hear, and a great cover. But you can't go to dead shows uh, just looking for covers. That won't work. You know, there's there's too many of the stuff, too much of the stuff that they play that's so great. And we talk about this this first set only being a six-song first set, which it was. Uh, but it's an amazing thing when you get a 15-minute uh, killer bird song to close out the first set. So let's let's listen to a snippet of that for a minute. beautiful ode to Janis Joplin as I say a killer 15 minute version to close out the first set send everybody into the hallways with a big smile on their face uh, I'm sure waiting for uh, uh, the big second set and, and where that would take them to uh, Birdsong is the first tune that I, re- I ever remember having uh, a type 2 jam right where they get so lost in that deep space in the middle of it uh, that I would forget what song they were playing until they, you know, touch back down at the very end with the Don't Cry Now uh, lead-in, which is really my favorite part of the song. Unfortunately, this version of it, uh, they, they kind of jammed on it a little bit or jammed through it and didn't hit it the way I like, so I, I pulled another part of the song. Um, but uh, that would really snap you right back to reality. You know, you'd be out there floating, 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 and all of a sudden, Don't Cry Now, and boom, you're like, all oh, right, bird song. Um you know, and that, you know, was really, uh, you know, just the way it would be before, you know, they'd move on to the next song and lose you again. And I'm sure that, you know, there's deadheads out there who can testify to having type two shows where somewhere in the middle of the show, they probably must have wondered, where the hell am I? Who is this band playing? And, you know, what's going on? They're just taking me so far away. And that's what the dead did. And they were uh, really, really good at it when they did it. And uh, this is a great example of them doing it. And uh, it, it's a great place. But on the one hand, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't like bird songs to close out the set because it never, for me, was a traditional first set closer. You know, I'd like a bird song uh, that if they're only going to do seven songs, you know, maybe goes into the music never stopped. Right. Or, you know, give Bobby a chance to kind of jam out on that or, uh, you know, throw a Bobby tune in or one of the cowboy songs and let Jerry play deal. Um, uh, you know, because those are the songs you think about that would come at the end. And, and when they close the set with something else, uh, then it, you know, at least for the moment forecloses the possibility of hearing certain tunes uh, that you want to hear. But that's just, uh, you know, my, my grateful dead nerdism rising to the surface and five minutes into bird song. I'm happier. I'm happy as can be that that's what they decided to play uh, and enjoying every minute of it, even if it does 
ultimately lead to the end of the set. But like I say, uh, after a song like that, you're ready for a little break. Uh, go get your, uh, your 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 water glasses or whatever you're drinking refilled. Uh, take stock of uh, your mental state and see if that needs any adjusting. Uh, and then you get ready to dive back in uh, for the second part of the show. And there is more of this show that we will get to in a few minutes. Um, but let's uh, let's talk about some uh, what's going on with music for a minute. Uh, more marijuana news we'll get back to in a few minutes, but I want to dive into some of this marijuana, some of this music news. Um, first and foremost, uh, and, and I only just throw this in just because um, it's uh, it's something that's fun to do and something that's fun to note. Uh, Vita Blue, pitcher for the Oakland A's, most notably for the Oakland A's, but also had a great run uh, with the uh, San Francisco Giants later in his career, recently died. And uh, although that's sad, and I was a big Oakland A's fan when I was a kid because the Cardinals hadn't quite proven to me that they could be regular winners. And the A's had really cool uniforms and wore white shoes, which made him for me and my buddy Mark the, the coolest team around. And actually, Mark's cousin, Kenny Holtzman, pitched for him. So uh, you know that they were our, our team. Um, but he died. But there's been this band out there for years that I've heard of. I've never seen them. Vita Blue, which is uh, Paige McConnell's band playing with O'Teal Burbridge, uh, Russell Batiste Jr., Adam Zimmerman, a few other people who have probably uh, come in and out and joined them from time to time. Um, and uh, the thing I thought that was so cool was back in 2004 at a show at the Fillmore in San Francisco. Uh, apparently they must have worked this out in advance or Vita Blue was just a big fan of their music because he was there and they invited him up on stage. Uh, and Vita, of course, a big fan favorite in the Bay Area, having pitched on both sides of the Bay. Uh having started the all-star game for both leagues. I think he was the only one who ever did that. And uh, I also believe he may have been the last pinch hitter to uh, get a try in the hall of fame or win the MVP, something like that, whatever it was, man, Vita blue was just the bomb. And uh, it's very sad that he's passed away as we get older. And those of us that were alive during that period of time and our heroes get older too. Um, so uh, uh, we miss Vita blue and condolences to his family and uh, you know, Hopefully that will not stop Paige and the guys from uh, continuing to play and tour with them uh, from time to time and uh, making everybody happy with the music that they create. In Grateful Dead news, as we roll along uh, from April into May, it means it's time for the second Dave's pick of 2023. And they release a great show from 1972, September 9th my good friend Lisa's birthday and my good friend Larry Van Oker's birthday. Larry's been on the show with us along with my other buddy, Larry Rader from New York. And we've all had a great time talking about uh, uh, the Grateful Dead, but uh, uh, this comes from his birthday back in 1972 at the Hollywood Palladium out in Los Angeles. And uh, the truth is it, it's just a, uh, it's just a fantastic show uh, uh, from promised land, uh, kicking it all the way through a uh, Johnny B. Good first set closer, or no, excuse me, a uh, a deal closer, and then diving into a second set, opening with playing in the band into Loser, into Johnny B. Good uh, with uh, China Cat Sunflower, Friend of the Devil. Uh, it, it just goes on and on and on. And actually, I'm sorry, I had it right the first time. <laughs> it, it was a Johnny B. Good closer. They 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 played 11 songs in the first set. Uh, they opened the second set with China Rider, um, and then you know goes all the way through. Uh, and ultimately finishing with a, a stellar El Paso. I don't know if they've sold out. They have a, a run of limited run of 25,000 of them. Uh, you can buy a subscription uh, usually in November or October or November for the following year. Um, it's a little 
pricey side, but not horrible considering you're getting four shows over the course of the year and you don't have to fight the masses on the days when they finally announce them and say, you know, it's being released and there's only a few a few of them left. But nevertheless, uh, it's a great, great show. I uh, highly me- recommend getting it or trying to find a place to download it and listening to it. Uh, it speaks to a wonderful show from a wonderful era for the dead. And uh, they're, they're really cranking along at that time um, uh, with Keith uh, playing the piano. Uh, fully uh, worked into the band and uh, uh, they just give it a great effort. And uh, for those uh, who have the subscription to uh, Dave's pick every year, this second one when it's released is also the time when they release their annual bonus disc. Now to understand that back in the day uh, when they would release shows, it was not uncommon for them to throw a bonus disc in the primary purpose being that they, they didn't have enough space on the three or four CD set to get in all the music they wanted to get in. So they'd start throwing in bonus discs and then they realized, Hey, you know, we can capitalize on this too. So now you can only get the bonus disc if you buy the Dave subscriptions each year. Um, and then you only get one of them. You don't get one with each release, but we get this one. And as usual, it's, it's from, uh, right around uh, the same time period as the show on September 9th. Uh, they pull some music for uh, from September 3rd, 1972, from Folsom Field in Boulder, Colorado. And then from November, excuse me, September 19th, 1972, uh, from a show at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, New Jersey. And it's all uh, some of the great music of the time, music that they had been playing and introducing on their new Americana Dead uh, era, uh, starting uh, you know with with uh, a lot of the music off of American Beauty and Working Man's uh, other stuff uh, off of Ace, Greatest Story, Bertha, Bird Song we just heard, and then uh, some stuff that was going to be coming off Wake of the Flood and some of their later albums, including uh, uh, Mississippi Half Step um, and uh, and others, a, a great China writer. Uh, really fun trucking um, and just uh, really, really good stuff. Very much worth it. And uh, they, they play, they're playing it a lot on the uh, XM dead station right now. Uh, so you might want to check that out too, as a way to pick up some of the tunes. And uh, I think you will really, really enjoy listening to that, but it's not just the dead uh, that's releasing stuff at right now at this moment, uh, Garcia live volume 19 has dropped and uh, has been released. I just received my copy uh, a show from October 31st, 1992 uh, at the Oakland Coliseum. Now, this show represents Jerry's comeback after his second coma from three months earlier. Uh, the first coma was back in 1986, uh, right before the summer tour, uh, when he slipped into a diabetic coma, almost died, and then uh, came out and had to relearn how to play the guitar. So the story goes, uh, but by uh, the fall of that year, he was back on stage, coming back first with the Jerry Garcia band, and then ultimately making his appearance in uh, Oakland at the Coliseum in early December uh, before rolling into those New Year's shows of that year. So same thing here, kind of. Uh, he had gone into his coma uh, during the summer, uh, came back, slimmed down, sounded much better, uh, clearly had a lot more a lot more energy. Uh, and unfortunately, it wouldn't last for long, but at least on that night, uh, it was awesome. And he, he came out and really, really put on a great show uh, as he rolled forward and uh, what would ultimately be the last loop from 92, ultimately right into 95. And then that was it. And on this night uh, for Jerry, if you if you can get your hands on this disc, and, and I don't think that this one was uh, released in a limited edition. I think it's out there uh, and you can get it. And uh, he covers How Sweet It Is by James Taylor. You Never Can't Tell uh, by Chuck Berry and also well-known from the F- Pulp Fiction Dan Contest with John Travolta and Uma Thurman. 
Uh, it covers the night they drove old Dixie down, uh, written by Robbie Robertson, covered uh, originally performed by Robbie and the band. Lay Down Sally from Eric Clapton, and it stoned me, Van Morrison. What a Wonderful World uh, from Bob Thiel and George Weiss, uh, which was recorded by Louis Armstrong in 1967. And people know that song very well. Waiting for a Miracle by Bruce Coburn, Tangled Up in Blue by Bob Dylan, and it being uh, Halloween night, uh, you know, you know Jerry's going to play Werewolves of London to close it all out by Warren Zevon, and he does, and it, it's another uh, fantastic performance uh, of a great tune. Uh, he does throw in a killer deal uh, as just to make sure that we get a, a really hot Jerry number in there, and really, I don't know what else you could want from a, uh, a Jerry Garcia show. Uh, this one's just fire from start to finish. And uh, very, very strongly recommended for people who have either heard the Jerry Garcia Band and missed those days or never had an opportunity to hear the Jerry Garcia Band. And you'll really want to have an opportunity to hear out, hear what they missed out on. Uh, and, you know, if you put it on in your house and turn off the lights and dance around, um, I'm sure that uh, it's not quite the same, but you can have a, a wonderful transformative experience with it. And uh, it, it, it's the perfect music for that kind of a thing. So uh, Garcia Live Volume 19 from Oakland Coliseum on October 31st, 1992. But now back to the dead, because it being this time of the year, uh, early May, uh, they've now come up with their program of their annual box sets. Last year, it was In and Out of the Garden, the, the Madison Square Garden shows of the early 1980s. And now they've uh, announced that the, the next one uh, is going to be called Here Comes Sunshine uh, and captures five shows from May and June of 1973. Um, we've, we've often talked about 73 being one of the really, really prime years for the Grateful Dead. Some people think of it as uh, the greatest year or one of the greatest years in conjunction with 1977. Um, of course, there's other good years out there that people love, and rightfully so, because they're all really pretty good. Um, but 73, there's no doubt that it's kind of universally acknowledged as a peak, peak year for the Grateful Dead. And these shows uh, speak to that era and are... Uh, you know, you could have picked any five shows from that era, I think. And, you know, I, I could have given them five shows that I love uh, that aren't even these five shows. But uh, I've already ordered it and I'm very excited to get it and, and be able to sit and listen to all of this. Uh, 17 CDs total. Uh, they have Des Moines, Iowa from May 13th. Santa Barbara, California from May 20th, 1973. San Francisco, a show in Kizar Stadium in Golden Gate Park from May 26th, 1973. And then uh, two shows from Washington, D.C. and RFK Stadium on June 9th and 10th of 1973. And that's really pretty significant because 73 is still relatively early uh, in the band's post-Primal Dead era. And to be playing a place like RFK Stadium is just a huge venue where we saw them play well into the 90s. Um, and, you know, I think that's very impressive that uh, there were promoters out there who felt comfortable enough booking them into such a large venue uh, and, 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 you know, probably selling quite a few tickets for that. So these are all, uh, five wonderful shows from that era. Uh, they capture all of the classics and all of the special tunes, the, the, uh, speeded up version of they love each other, uh, all sorts of stuff that they're doing the introductions of eyes of the world and things like that, that are first coming out and, uh, and really making an appearance. Um, and you know, I, again, I think that it's a great opportunity uh, yes, most of it's probably available online, uh, and most of you probably know how to get it that way. I'm just a sucker for good packaging, and I like all of the, the, the booklets and all the pamphlets and information and read it so much that, you know, 
like I say, you know, Rob and I hold ourselves out as kind of anal, grateful deadhead nerds who know the most arcane trivia. And that's because we sit around and we read this stuff, but it's a lot of fun. The packaging is always very pretty, put it out in the living room and people always compliment it. So uh, looking forward to getting that one a little bit later this year when it's finally released. And of course, you know, really the key to all of it, I think, uh, is that it was recorded uh, in combination by Kid Candelario, Betty Cantor Jackson, who we've talked about, Mary Directs Jackson, and of course, Owsley Stanley, the bear himself. Uh, it's a limited edition, only 10,000 copies being offered. Um, so if you want to have the box and you want to have all of the fun stuff that comes with it and and the really nice disc so that someday uh, when the entire power grid crashes and all of the backup uh, cloud banks empty of memory, uh, those of us with the discs and the, you know, with the originals uh, will still have a way and everybody will have to come back to us to repopulate the web. And I'm sure we'll do it for a price. Um, but uh, I would go ahead and order this or at least find a way to listen to some of it or just start listening to 1973 on archive or re-listen or whichever streaming service you go to, uh, to listen to your live Grateful Dead, uh, if you're not buying the stuff from them. Uh, but 1973 is just filled right across the board. Uh, spring tour is great. Summer tour is great. Fall tour is great. And uh, there's wonderful examples uh, from all of them. Uh, these just happen to be uh, favorites of uh, the boys, and I'm sure Dave's. Uh, and so this is what we're seeing. Uh, when I get in and I can read his introduction, I'll find out a little bit more about why he loves them so much. And we can come back and talk about them at that point uh, and even be able to give you a review on them. Uh, but the, just great stuff that the dead are releasing. They continue to release. Uh, they're releasing stuff on vinyl. Uh, so much of it out there. Uh, is some of it excess? Yeah, probably. Uh, but again, for those of us that like the stuff, we can't get enough of it. And uh, very, very excited uh, that this is what they're doing. Now, we can talk about the dead all day long, but we got to go back and listen to some of it. So we're going to go back in and listen. And I picked uh, this particular uh, song, if you will, or part of a song for a reason, which I'll talk about in a minute. But you fish heads probably know why. So go ahead, Dan. Speak fish. This was the original Twee Pry long before there was even a tweezer, long before there was even a fish. 
um, maybe even long before Trey picked up a guitar. I have no idea. And I love Tweezer and Tweepry is always a lot of fun. Tweezer repride, you know, and, and, and playing in the band reprise, I think is what probably launched it, uh, you know, certainly for uh, adherents of rock and roll at that time and fans of the Grateful Dead. Uh, and it's always wonderful to see it uh, incorporated into other band songs and, and Fish plays it uh, just as much in a fun way as the Dead do, you know, because with the Dead, sometimes it would actually just be at the end of playing. Um, right. They would just play all the way through playing, have a good long jam and, and pop it in there. Sometimes they would do playing into another tune uh, and then come back into the uh, uh, play and reprise, um, you know, and, and they could do it that way, um, which, you know, is always fun because, you know, then you're getting that little sandwich around it and everything. And, uh, you know, who doesn't like this in this case, actually, that's exactly what they did with crazy fingers. Um, uh, they came out of the second set with a great, here comes sunshine into playing in the band, uh, almost 10 minutes of jamming, getting lost in the middle of everything, uh, crazy fingers. And then right as we picked up on the tape there, the do, 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 boom. And they're right back into playing in the band, uh, you know, with a vengeance and, and wrapping it up so that they would do it as a song sandwich sometimes later in the set, or maybe even in the next set, if it playing showed up in the first set, which it did from time to time, uh, sometimes as an encore or a second encore, though, not very often, just because there were not a lot of second encores with the dead, uh, sometimes later in the same run of shows. And sometimes at a show later on the tour, uh, you never knew. And that's why you went to all of them, miss a little, miss a lot. And uh, it was always fun if, if you heard the, the play and, and realized that they had dropped the play and reprie. It was always fun uh, to try and guess the show where they were going to do it. And if you could manage to be there, uh, that was even better. And sometimes you just had to accept your not. And sometimes it was nice. You were on the other end. And even though you missed the play and you got the reprie uh, and had a lot of fun with it. So um, good stuff. Love it when they do it. And uh, yes, there were times when they didn't do it at all, but. Uh, mostly they did, and it, it just keeps everyone happy. And it, you know, it serves that same purpose as Tweezer Reprise. It kind, kind of pulls you back into the mindset you had earlier in the show, as now you're getting uh, uh, more towards the end of the show. And uh, it's just a way to go back and, and, and tap back into that same energy and really get people going. Um, one or two more marijuana stories, and then we're going to come back and, and wrap it up with. Uh, uh, the encore from this dead show, which is a, a wonderful encore and another great cover uh, and, and a song that I love and uh, I'm very happy to hear them playing it. Uh, more good marijuana news. Now let's dive into this for a minute. The state of Washington has passed a bill and the state governor uh, Inslee uh, has signed a bill to protect job applicants uh, from anti-marijuana discrimination. Uh, so Jay Inslee signed this bill. It will protect workers from facing employment discrimination during the hiring process over their lawful use of marijuana. At a signing ceremony, he gave final approval to the legislation, enacting the bill into law about three weeks after it cleared the legislature. The reform is limited to job applicants. As he noted before signing the measure, employees will still be able to maintain a drug-free workplace or prohibit the use of cannabis by workers after they are hired. Now, that's problematic for me. Um, if you're going to say that we can protect people and that they can't be denied a job because they've smoked marijuana, then why does anybody care if they smoke marijuana away from the job? Employers are entitled to a drug-free workplace. I make no argument against that. If it's your business and that's what you prefer, 
that that's great. Sometimes safety demands it. Sometimes other things demand it. But you know, we're we're all flexible about everything, and something has to be flexible there. But if you know that somebody smokes marijuana and you're willing to hire them anyway, but later on you're going to penalize them for smoking marijuana, even if it's not on company time, to me that seems very, very problematic. So I think that this is a start. It's not a final uh, uh, solution to these problems. And look, like we've talked about before, employers have to act at their own risk. And I think this is a much bigger risk for an employer than an employee, and people will laugh at that. Oh, the employer still has the business. The employee is out. Yeah, but not so fast, you know, depending on the type of business you have and the nature of the types of people you have for the jobs that you have, you know, you're a law firm and you have a bunch of, you know, young urban professionals who are working with you. There's a good chance that a few of them smoke marijuana. Um, Shouldn't be surprised if that happens at all. And if you say we're going to have a zero drug tolerance policy here in the office and somebody tests and you got to get rid of them, what if three of them, what if they were all at a party together or at a Grateful Dead show together? And they all test positive. Are you prepared to cut out a third or a quarter of your workforce over something like that? Hey, look, it's your it's your business if you are. God bless you. But, you know, hopefully the idea is, is that you recognize that it's really kind of silly because in, we always talk about, right, presence versus impairment. If they're not impaired, if it's just present when they show up and that's the day you decide to test, you're really doing yourself and them and everybody a big disservice if that's going to be the basis for getting rid of them. Again, it's your decision to make. Uh, right now, the law says that you can do it if you want. But, you know, you have to take the risks that go along with it. And if it means a decrease in your customer service performance, then I'm sure you'll feel it in the pocketbook. And you can always go back and, and, and reevaluate that stuff. So employment always remains a, a fraught territory for people in this industry. But at the end of the day, it's one we have to work on. And it's nice to see at least that Governor Inslee and the state of Washington are, are taking first steps in that regard. And now just a quick state roundup because there is a lot going on uh, in all over the states and we'll try to move pretty quickly with this and get back to the music to wrap up uh, so we don't take up too much of your precious time. And thank you for making it this far with me today. It's been a fun show so far. And let's see what's going on around the country. In Arizona, uh, the state Senate approved psilocybin research grants as part of a budget to study medical potential of psilocybin mushrooms. Five million is the amount allocated for the study and a related health-focused budget measure Uh, that also cleared the chamber, details requirements for the clinical trials that these dollars will support. So they're doing a lot of the rulemaking as well uh, so that they can get this thing up and uh, and running. Uh, Recognized conditions for treatment, since this is a uh, medical uh, program, would include PTSD, depression, anxiety, long COVID symptoms, and substance abuse disorder. It's not being legalized, but people who receive grant money and work on clinical trials will be explicitly protected from prosecution by the new law. So I think that's a step in the right direction for something like that. And immediately we turn back to the state of Washington and Governor Inslee, who signed a bill to create a psilocybin therapy pilot program. The program will provide therapeutic access to psychedelics for mental health treatment. Uh, Pushed back on the the Washington... uh, Governor pushed back on a broader bill that would have legalized psilocybin, allowing folks 21 years of age and older to access the psychedelic, uh, to access psychedelics under the care of a licensed facilitator. Uh, they want to allow access to it for military vets and first responders, again, in treatment of PTSD and mood and substance abuse disorders. Because as we've talked about sometimes, psilocybin and marijuana can be very good for getting people off of far more dangerous things like opiates, heroin, uh, alcohol, and, and other uh, substances that are abused uh, to the great detriment and great harm to the human body. 
uh, far greater than any that uh, have yet to be proven to be caused by uh, marijuana or psilocybin. Um, so, you know, as we've also talked about on psilocybin, I, I can't slam governments for going a little bit slower with that uh, because anyone who smoked uh, one joint too many, one took over the line, as we like to say, uh, uh, versus somebody who's taken a few too many grams of mushrooms. Uh, I think most people will uh, agree when I say that uh, the, the additional impact on you of having taken too much mushrooms can be far more devastating uh, than having smoked too much marijuana, where usually you can just fall asleep or turn on a TV program and be fine. But if you've, if you've eaten too much mushroom uh, and, and you're out there and, you know, wandering around on the night, you know, at a party, not sure where you are, or, you know, even if you are sure and, you know, trying to make heads or tails of your surroundings, uh, you know, mushrooms have the ability to distort that reality. I think it's very important, and I would agree that certainly for a starting point that they'd be limited to medical application, uh, and then we can let healthcare professionals, you know, come out and give us examples of ways that they can be packaged and produced, uh, you know, maybe in pill form. I know people that like to, uh, to do it that way. Uh, you can get psilocybin in chocolate bars now, and uh, there's quite a few different ways uh, for it to be uh, man manufactured and packaged and presented uh, to the public, but it is uh, much more psychoactive and has the potential uh, to, to, to make your disassociation with reality stronger and longer. So um, kudos to the states for, for stepping into that pond um, and uh, you know for the rest of us uh, for having patience to let them do it the right way uh, so that we uh, can have an opportunity to take advantage of it to the extent uh, we either need to medically or to the extent that they ultimately say, uh, it can be used for self-help purposes uh, for medical things. In Florida, a marijuana campaign has collected enough signatures to qualify for legal, a legalization initiative on the November 2024 ballot. It was announced by TrueLeave, which is financially back, which is financially backing the Smart and Safe Florida campaign. They needed uh, 891,523 valid signatures. To date, the state has verified for them 786,688 as of the end of April. They've already gotten enough signatures to initiate a Supreme state Supreme Court review of the measure's language submitted by the state's attorney general. The state Supreme Court will look to make sure that the text of the proposal doesn't violate the state's constitution's single subject rule and isn't affirmative, affirmatively misleading to voters. If the court determines the proposal meets those standards, then the measure will qualify for ballot placement once enough signatures have been verified. It looks like they're well on their way to getting that done. Don't forget Florida's the state that's allowing Circle K uh, to partner up with GTI uh, and create dispensaries at all of these Circle K uh, locations, uh, at least on the Florida Turnpike, if not in other places. And right now it's for medical, but if this adult use passes, uh, that could be a wonderful thing too. Uh, it would really be a big step in the right direction in terms of making marijuana available uh, to the public overall. Uh, on the other hand, we go out to New Hampshire, which I always like to think of being right next door to Vermont and Maine and you know being a little more liberal, but they're tough out there and their senators are signaling that the marijuana legalization bill is going to fail when it comes to, to the floor for a vote. Uh, the Senate Majority Leader uh, noted that the House passed a bill which will be defeated after a key committee voted against it last week. There's no sign yet of any amendment to legalize cannabis through a state-run model, kind of like the way they run their alcohol. Uh, and interestingly, Governor Chris Sununu, who is a Republican, but in my opinion, tends to be a little more uh, 
center than far right, said the state should only consider the policy change after the state has addressed other drug-related issues. You don't legalize drugs for money, he said. That's not why you do it. You do it because of harm reduction and the opportunities for citizens. Well, I get the point he's making, but yeah, you do do it to legalize for money because it's not just creating jobs and improving your economy. It's creating more tax dollars for the state. So you know, to try to pretend like that's not really going on, I think is a little disingenuous. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, it sounds like New Hampshire has far bigger problems to work on uh, you know, before they become a situation where their citizens are going to all the other nearby states to take advantage of the uh, marijuana that's available there. Uh, thereby depriving New Hampshire of uh, tax dollars that every state needs these days uh, you know, because they want to take a stand for reasons that they want to take a stand, uh, which takes us to Missouri, uh, my home state, and they continue to uh, come up with very interesting stuff. The operators are pushing their back against the proposed labeling and video uh, surveillance rules that the state wants to implement uh, to comply with the state constitution that marijuana labeling shall not be made to be attractive to children. Uh, the state is proposing plain or uniform labeling, like with cigarettes and medicine. The state claims that such packaging uh, increases attention to and perceptions of harm and reduce social appeal. So it's kind of like, look, if we put plain or uniform labeling on there, it gives it more of a medicine feel. It's not attractive to kids uh, and certainly not as attractive to adolescents. Uh, the proposed label change is not a surprise to the Missouri companies. Uh, it had been talked about for a while. Uh, the companies must also have electronic video monitoring with high-def cameras throughout the building that can be accessed remotely. Uh, the industry is pushing back on this as much as they can. Uh, money and all that kind of surprising about the cameras. Those have always been a part of uh, uh, Illinois uh, licenses for a long, long time. Uh, so it's nice to see that Missouri uh, is, is requiring steps that will increase the security and the safety, not just of the people who work in these facilities, uh, but the public that, that visits them uh, to make purchases. Now, what's interesting is that notwithstanding all of this pushback in, in Missouri, operators being concerned what it might do to the market, and just in another amazing set of numbers, they've sold $350 million worth of products since recreational sales were launched three months ago. That's $91 million in April this past month after $93 million in March uh, right before that. Now, the totals do include medical sales. Uh, but cannabis business owners think the number are going to be much, much higher because larger companies are not yet operating at full capacity on the cultivation side. And But they know as of yet, they still cannot satisfy consumer demand, which is big. By contrast, it took Illinois seven months to hit $300 million. Now, it won't catch Illinois, while, while um, Missouri won't catch Illinois' expected $1.6 billion for this year, uh, which may even grow larger as more and more of these new dispensaries come online, Missouri is still poised to hit $1 billion in sales in year one. Illinois' first year ended with only $670 million. Missouri is just going gangbusters, uh, and it's wonderful to see. It's, you know, again, like I say, one of the things from my home state, besides being a big Cardinal fan and uh, enjoying Anheuser-Busch beer, sorry, Kid Rock, but that's just the way it goes. Um, you know, it's great to see them, uh, at least for right now, and, you know, there's always an opportunity for anybody to screw things up. But for right now, they're doing it right with marijuana, and that's great. Uh, two quick final stories, because my producer is giving me signals that says we've got to stop. Nevada sports regulars have sent a proposal to the governor to stop penalizing fighters over marijuana uh, so that they don't want them to be penalized if they're tested uh, and shows they've been using or possessing marijuana in compliance with state law. Even if they use marijuana in a different state, 
and it's still protected if their use would have been compliant under Nevada law. That's great. Athletes like to use marijuana. This needs to be implemented by all sports leagues and all organizations that monitor athletes. And finally, you know, keep your fingers crossed and let's see what happens. New Jersey's governor uh, signed a cannabis tax bill to decouple the state tax policy from federal provisions thereby allowing marijuana companies to deduct ordinary business expenses on their state tax filings. They still won't be able to do it on their federal filings, but they will be able to do it on their state tax filings. And of course, we'll see uh, if the IRS tries to stick its nose in where it doesn't belong. Uh, That would be a great thing if the state could do that. I'm not enough of a tax expert to know what the net tax effects on it would be, but hopefully it would be positive and every positive dollar will help the industry uh, continue to thrive. Um, so wow, it's been a great show today. Can't believe the time has flown by, but we're talking about great stuff, stuff that's fun to talk about and nothing's more fun to talk about than amazing Grateful Dead shows like May 15th, 1993 at the Sam Boyd Silver Bowl. And after a a great show with lots of great covers, lots of great dead classics, we get to the end of the night, um, and which we're going to listen to here in a second on our way out the door. Um, but what's amazing about it, uh, is it's a Beatles tune. Uh, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, no surprises here. Uh, That's a song uh, that was released on May 26, 1967, almost 56 years ago. Think about that and feel old for people who have been uh, listening to Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds their whole life. And the story behind it is fascinating. Everybody just believes that Lucy, so LSD, Sky Diamonds, was the Beatles code for singing about the joys of LSD to the world. Uh, But John Lennon said that his inspiration for the song came when his three-year-old son, Julian, showed him a nursery school drawing that he called Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, depicting his classmate, Lucy O'Donnell. Julian later recalled, I don't know why I called it that or why it stood out from all my other drawings, but I obviously had an affection for Lucy at that age. I used to show Dad everything I built or painted at school, and this one sparked off the idea. Ringo Starr recalls witnessing the moment and said that Julian first uttered the song's title on returning home from nursery school. John Lennon later said, I thought that's beautiful. I immediately wrote a song about it. So shortly before the album's release, again, the speculation arose uh, whether it was referring to LSD, um, the initialism commonly used for for what we all know to be the hallucinogenic drug. Uh, Lennon repeatedly denied that he had intended it as a drug song and attributed the song's fantastical imagery to his reading of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland books, a song that was long rumored and always wished for by deadheads The Dead wound up playing it a total of about 20 times, first on May 17th, 1993 at the Cap Center in Landover, Maryland, uh, which may have housed some of the best Grateful Dead shows of all time. And the last time also very close to the end was June 28th, 1995 at the Palace of Auburn Hills, just outside Detroit. It's a beautiful song. The Dead do it great. It's a great way to end a a lovely uh, Grateful Dead show and a wonderful podcast. Don't miss us next week for Tony Saunders. It's going to be great with wonderful stories and fantastic music. Have a great week. Enjoy yourselves and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Tune into a major journey podcast today, where guests take listeners on journeys and immerse themselves in the roller coaster ride both in and out of the cannabis space that brought them to where they are today. Throughout our conversations, guests share valuable lessons that they've learned along the way that listeners can use to empower growth both in their personal and professional lives. Check out A Major Journey today on all major podcast platforms.